2: Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast, I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. In this episode, we're going to look at Bethnal House. Hi, today I'm joined by a very interesting person. Hello there.
1: I'm David Charnick. I'm actually a tour guide in the London borough of Tower Hamlets and also in the City of London. I've lived in Tower Hamlets all my life and I teach tour guiding there through the local council. Hello once again, David. How are you? I'm
2: fine, thanks, Derek. Good to see you again. Right. I've got some questions for you this, this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, driving around, certainly when I'm in the Bethnal Green area, um, I come past the Bethnal Library, Bethnal Green Library on Cambridge Heath Road. Mm -hmm. The building looks quite old for sort of a
1: library. It is. I mean, the library started in the early 1920s, but the building itself goes back to the 1890s and it wasn't actually built as a library. Okay. so would
2: you like to tell me what it was before and another interesting question i mm. believe the park in front of it is called Barmy
1: park does that allude to anything
2: yeah that's your
1: clue really it's uh, a rather uh, cruel local nickname for the park but the library building that survives is actually the only fragment left of the bethnal green lunatic asylum that uh, was in action from the 1720s through till 1920. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Is, um, when you
2: say a lunatic asylum, so was that the building or was it smaller or bigger or, or how did that
1: develop? It was substantially bigger, Derek. Uh, what we've got there is just a little dormitory wing that was built in the 1890s. But the hospital itself was uh, quite considerable. It was one of the biggest institutions of its kind in the country. And who would have funded the building of that institution? Was it built specifically no, uh, it actually was a big sort of manor house out in what was then the Sticks in the countryside in the 1570s. And it was taken over in the 1720s by a man called Matthew Wright. And like all these establishments, it was run as a business. And in fact, it was a family-owned business uh, when it closed in 1920. And all the inmates were moved away, actually to Swindon in Wiltshire. So, who would have funded him? Where
2: would he have made his profit from? Well, there you go. Um, Do you mean the original person? Yeah, the original person. I mean, presumably in the 1780s, um, there wasn't sort of a National Health Service. So, I'm wondering where the money came from to pay for inmate
1: stays. There were two types of inmate. There were the private inmates and the paupers who were on the parish, as it were. In the uh, sort of Georgian period and so on, there were these little establishments that were called madhouses at the time, and they were popping up. But they were only in a certain area. They were sort of Bethnal Green, round to Oxton and so on, and round to the parish of St Luke's on Old Street. So it was kind of a little crescent of these establishments. And they took in private patients Uh, Patients obviously, inverted commas. And also they took on paupers from specific parishes. So in the case of Bethnal House, the main parishes were Marylebone and St. George's Hanover Square. And they didn't have this kind of facility. So they would send their, uh, their poor people who were in need of some form of care. And they would send them to these buildings and they would send money to them. Although, of course, the money largely went into the master's pocket because the amount of care was negligible. To be honest, it wasn't care at all. I was going to ask you
2: about that. So presumably there would have been limited medication and limited help to help these people get back to some sense of lively normality.
1: There was very little medication, nothing to do with their conditions. You know, they didn't didn't have... Uh, drugs and they didn't have therapeutic activities that kind of thing what you had was restraint force feeding and neglect so the only medical attention would be local doctors who would be brought in to uh, supervise from time to time and uh, carry out small procedures like uh, removing toes lost to frostbite in the winter and stuff like that
2: so the conditions must have been very, very bad in there.
1: They were gruesome, certainly for the, uh, the paupers on the parish. You had the private people as well, as I mentioned, and sometimes they were they did have genuine psychological problems, and other times they were what's become known as inconvenient people, people that, um, that the family or other people wanted out of the way. And it was effectively a way of imprisoning people. So, once you were committed to this institution, how did you gain release? You didn't, not really. Certainly, if you were a pauper, because you know nothing would be done to improve your condition, and also you were the the master of the madhouse was being paid for having you there, so they wanted to keep you there. Oh, I suppose yeah, that makes sense. The more inmates he had, the more profit he was going to make. Yep. And they would cram them in as well, you know, there there was no idea of living space, you just shoved them all in, as many beds as you could into a room, and so on. And just going back to the
2: history of the building itself, you said Mm. it wasn't built as an asylum, Um, there was somebody living
1: there prior to that, can you tell me a little bit about him? Yeah, his name was John Kirby, and he was a businessman of the City of London, he was a grocer, and... At that time, London was the city. You didn't really get anything outside the city. In the following century, the 17th century, you start getting development heading westwards, like Covent Garden, Lincoln's Inn Fields, Leicester Square, that kind of thing. But you don't get anything heading eastwards. And so it really was countryside. And places like Bethnal Green and Stepney... People who were either courtiers, you know, like lords, uh, or alternatively successful businessmen, would have themselves a nice country house built. Because you got no public transport at that time, or any real transport other than coaches and horses. So you had to be near the city, but you were in the countryside. So anyway, he had this big house built there for himself. And it was so big, the locals called it Kirby's Castle. You know, just being sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. But it was a substantial building. And so that was his home. And then eventually his family sold it on and so on. Uh, All the way through to 1727, when a man called Matthew Wright took it over. And he was the original madhouse keeper. Right. And did Wright come from a background
2: of... um? Institutional management, or was he just somebody
1: who saw an opportunity? As far as I know, he didn't have any other establishments like that, but they were coming into being, and there was clearly money to be made from this kind of thing. So his was the first in Bethnal Green, but there were other establishments at Hackney and Oxton and so on. Mm. So um, that the 1700s was a time of the growth of these establishments.
2: When I drive past um, and you you see the building, the one that's there now, um, looks to me as if it was n- built later than the seventeen
1: hundreds. Yeah, it was in the eighteen nineties, but the whole lot was demolished in the eighteen forties and rebuilt. Uh, that was uh, when it was changing ra- turning round. You know, it was uh, becoming less of a, a sort of shop of horrors and more an actual hospital, as we would understand the idea. OK. I know from a passenger in my taxi told
2: me once that um, it was used um, as a German prisoner of war camp briefly um, in, I think, 1917, she told me.
1: Oh, right. Mm. Mm.
2: So it's had many uses in its life. Yeah, clearly. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: And um, what's
1: left of it now? What's left of it is just the the library building... There's a little cottage round the back um, and uh, from I've read that it was used for, you know, in the later times of the, the place where, for people who needed uh, extra special care and they were accommodated in there. It's used now for accommodation of homeless people, getting them back into the idea of having a home of their own. Oh, right. So it's sort of reverting back to some form of use. Yeah, sort of um it, it's sort of re- rehabilitation of a different kind. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, more social rather than psychological if you like. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah.
2: Um and going back to the history of the building, mm. obviously we've discussed its use as a, as a uh, for want of a better word a lunatic asylum. Mm-hmm. Um and it was a a, a private residence before oh. that. And yeah. We've we've detail that it might have been used briefly as a prisoner of war camp and it's now a library mm-hmm. are there any other famous people associated with that
1: building that we haven't touched on there is quite a famous person uh, which is samuel Pepys. oh right um samuel Pepys. we tend to remember him of course for his diary but he was an administrator of the royal navy and as the great fire of london was spreading in september 1666 he got a bit worried for his admiralty paperwork. And so he bundled it all together into barrows and took it eastwards to Bethnal House. And he popped it in there. And and his diary as well. He took his diary with him. So that was in Bethnal Green for about 10 days. Because he knew the owner at the time. The owner was a man called William Ryder. He was a contractor who supplied hemp and rope to the Royal Navy. So he'd met Pepys on a number of occasions, and Pepys actually records going out there to dine in Bethnal House, and he's very complimentary about the the quality of the gardens and so on, and also the quality of the women who were available at the time. As you know, I'm sure, Pepys had an eye for the ladies. Yes, I am aware Mm. of that fact, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, he's probably the most famous person associated with it as a residence. Yeah. And uh, funnily enough, Bethnal Green was originally called Bethnal. And the green became attached to the name because it became so important. And William Ryder's son, Thomas, in the 1670s, got a load of locals together, these wealthy businessmen, and they bought the village green. Because they didn't want to lose it because there was development coming up from Spitalfields and so on. And they thought, oh, we're going to be overrun and we don't want that. And so they literally bought the green to present, prevent it from being built on. So it's a very rare, original East End open space. A that bit we- like an oasis. Absolutely, yeah. These 17th century NIMBYs, you know, not in my backyard, they got together, bought the thing, and Mm. by doing that, they preserved it. So a lot of other places like the old Bow Common and Mile End Fields and that sort of thing, they've all been lost to development. And some of them have come back, you know, open spaces have been created in more recent times, but uh, the the, the actual Bethnal Green is a rare survival. And um, is the business or is the building, I
2: should say... Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, if it's been used as a library, it must meet certain standards. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if if the council or local authority decided it wasn't going to be a library anymore, is the
1: building still substantial enough to be used for other purposes? Oh, yeah. I mean, provided we didn't have a riot locally um, and the council did manage to sell it off. uh, It is substantial. It's actually had quite substantial refit and refurbishment uh, that was carried out during lockdown recently. So um, it is, it's actually quite nice in there now. Uh, Nice new um, stone entranceway and that kind of thing. There was the word that it was actually going to be closed down as a library, although, you know, carrying on in council use. But thankfully that didn't happen because it's a very much used local resource.
2: Yeah, I think it's nice that uh, the local people have access to it because it's been there Mm. for such a long time. Well, that's right. I mean, I've used that since I was a child. Oh well, enough said, <laughs> David. Thank you very much. Fascinating insight. Next time I go down the Cambridge Heath Road and look to my left or to my right, and I see that building, now I've, I've sort of more informed as to
1: what the history of it is. Thank you. Oh yes, I mean it's uh, it's fascinating the way it was turned round. Actually, if I just mention that very briefly. Yes, please. Yeah, um, because Matthew Wright, who took it over in 1727, he died somewhere before 1754 so we didn't get a great deal of use out of it but um, it becomes a bit murky who owned it after that until 1800 and it was taken over by a man called Thomas Warburton now he already had a place up at Oxton and so he took over Bethnal House and this is how we know about all the abuses that were being carried on there because in 1774, there was an act for the regulation of madhouses, but that was for private madhouses. Mm-hmm. So at Bethnal House, you had two parts. You had the Red House and the White House. So the Red House was for the um, the private people, and the White House was for the paupers on the parish. And there was a lot of...
0: In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Of agitation in Parliament that the 1774 Act didn't go far enough. It only regulated private inmates, not the paupers. And the upshot was that in 1815, a parliamentary select committee was established to look into... Problem and that looked into a number of establishments, but particularly Bethnal House. And so they had another um, select committee the following year, 1816, and it threw up so much about Bethnal House that ten years later they had another parliamentary select committee looking specifically at Bethnal House. The whole focus was that one establishment and the things that were going on there like people being chained to their beds and so on, and uh, they were cleaned by being swabbed down with a mop and things like this. Uh, there were cases where, as I mentioned, you, know, you would have doctors coming in to take off toes and occasionally feet because of frostbite, because these places weren't heated. And the other problem was force-feeding, Because if you had inmates who, for whatever reason, they they wouldn't eat, and so they'd clamp their jaws together to prevent the food going down. So what they would do, they had this, um, like a metal key that they would force between the teeth and then turn it to open the mouth. So inevitably, teeth would get chipped and broken through that. And then they would force-feed them using a thing like a teapot, but with a long spout. And the trouble is, the spout was too long, and... uh, there are records of people being choked to death by being force-fed. So all these things came out and Warburton was brought up before uh, an inquiry in 1827 and he was really cagey, you know, he'd been real blustery and stuff in his uh, sworn statements beforehand, but when he was actually up in front of a committee, Uh, Like a lot of bullies, when they actually get face down, he was suddenly lost for words, you know. And the upshot was that um, that brought through the Act of 1828, which regulated uh, paupers and porpoise treatments. By that time, Warburton had had enough, and he'd handed the place over to his son, John. And John Warburton was actually a doctor. And when he took over... He started turning the place round. He actually, curiously enough, he got um, as his assistant a fellow called Charles Beverley. And he was a, a naval surgeon who was out of a ship, but also a polar explorer. So he was a man of substance, you know, yeah, well, a, a man yeah. of mental substance and, uh, and some parts, as they say. And the two of them turned it round. And they demolished the whole lot, as I said, in the 1840s and had it all rebuilt. And they brought in things like therapeutic exercises and tasks and so on, put in a billiard room and a library and all sorts. And so by the mid-1840s, it was actually quite a decent establishment. In fact, um, the the commissioners of lunacy or sorry, commissioners in lunacy, as they were called, uh, they reported in 1844 that um, some of the inmates who'd been discharged. I mean, that was a big thing in itself, that they were being discharged. They were actually getting over their problems and and leaving. Uh, But some of them, they couldn't get work. And so they were allowed to come back and they were given a bed and meals while they were looking for work because it was worried They were worried that if these people couldn't get work and couldn't support themselves, then they would just have a relapse and be back to their original condition. So they were sort of like day patients almost... That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So from being, you know, a house of horrors, really, it was turned around and became a model hospital. Did the Act um, implement
2: inspections, for example? So could these people have turned the clock back if, if, if they'd have wanted to? Or did the Act ensure that these premises were inspected
1: to make certain they conformed? Official inspections, yeah, because there were expect- inspections, um, but these could be managed. You know, the um, oh, okay. I mean, this is how a lot of the uh, the abuses came to light between the eighteen sixteen select committee in the eighteen twenty six, because some inspectors from. Marylebone Parish, it was Marylebone and St. George's Hanover Square, as I say, they were the two parishes that sent most of the uh, inmates to Bethnal House, and they turned up and Warburton wasn't there, and Jennings, the manager of the place, he wasn't there either, and Jennings's wife took them round, and that's how they actually found places that Jennings wouldn't have shown them
2: I understand. So mm. they must have been appalled at what they'd seen. I mean, basically, they were paying for
1: this as well, even if it was for paupers. That's correct, yeah. So once that got out, St George's Hanover Square sent some people down as well to have a look around, and and they knew more what they should be looking for now. And they, and they actually managed to get through to a, a wing they didn't know existed. This is called the crib rooms, and this is where the patients were tied to their beds and so on.
2: Dreadful. Hmm.
1: What, um, and what time or when
2: did the last inmates leave Bethnal House? At what point
1: or what time? Well, that was 1920 when the place was closed. Uh, and at that point, it was still owned by the Warburton family. So it was still a private concern. Um, but they were moved out when the place closed down in 1920 and they were moved out to Swindon in Wiltshire. And then most of the complex was demolished and a new housing estate was built there, the Bethnal Green Estate, which was the first housing estate built by the Metropolitan Borough of Bethnal Green. But the, the little um, dormitory block that we've got now, that was saved in order to make it the local public library. And as I mentioned, there's that little cottage around the back as well. They're the only two fragments of a considerable institution. Yes, yeah. I'm mean, obviously pleased
2: to see something remains and it's used for better things nowadays. Mm, that's right. Yeah. We've mentioned um, inspections. Are there mm. any sort of specific cases? Did any of the inmates manage to keep diaries or records of their time?
1: The big... Sort of revelatory text is one called A London Citizen Exceedingly Abused, uh, which was written in the 1730s by a man called Alexander Cruden. And uh, he is, but well, he's less known now than he used to be. Uh, he was a Scottish bookseller who relocated to London and he is known for his Concordance to the Bible. Okay,
2: how did he end up in there?
1: He was one of those inconvenient people, as Ah, they called them, that uh, others wanted shuffled away. Uh, In 1736, he was, um, what he thought, making a headway with a widow, uh, someone he knew had died, and he knew the widow, and he claimed later that she was encouraging him. But it turned out that seemingly uh, his advances weren't that welcome. And so a man called Reitman, he managed to inveigle Cruden into a carriage that took him from his home all the way to Bethnal Green, and they popped him into Bethnal House, effectively as a prisoner. And uh, this is on the private side of things. This is one of the ways that uh, people often made their money in these uh, mad houses as they were known at the time because there were people who'd be prepared to pay for family members or other people to be popped into these institutions and they were out of the way
2: right and so was because he
1: had all his faculties he was able to log what happened to him there oh he did more than that um he at one point he was managing to smuggle messages out that he was asking to be advertised in the newspapers, printed in the newspapers, advertising what was being done to him and other people in there. And uh, it was that that uh, led them to put the chains back on. (laughs) He was in chains for a lot of his time in there.
2: What they released the chains, and of course he got up to what they would deem as no good, locked him
1: back up in the chains. Yes, they they locked him, they chained him to the bed for uh, um, months, literally, so he had, he had the same pair of trousers on for months, and, uh, you know, it, it starts actually with chains, I mean, there's a lot of chains uh, in his story, and when he got there, they chained him to the bed, the bed frame, uh, for some time, and then they thought, well, we'd give him a bit more freedom, and so they let him uh, go to the communal areas and even in the garden and so on. But even then, he was manacled, sort of handcuffed. Um, and after a couple of days, uh, they popped a straitjacket on him. Now Those jackets with yeah, the, yeah. the tapes on them, you know, they tape yeah, people behind you can't move. On. You're totally vulnerable. And uh, so he had to eat by just sort of, eating the food straight oh, off the bowl you know like a dog I suppose like a dog yeah and um and he couldn't uh couldn't relieve himself properly etc so because the the thing was on for days yes yeah but he managed to break it and he broke it so successfully that they couldn't use it anymore and they only had another one Oh, well and he done. had two in the first place. So <laughs> they didn't dare risk the other one, I suppose. And so uh, they didn't put him back into a straitjacket. Was there any
2: reaction th- to the messages he managed to smuggle out? I mean,
1: did it sort of create any outside interest? He seems to have got some messages out to his friends, but um, they seemed largely to have been intercepted. OK, yeah, I suppose it yeah. would have been. It was the the thing he wrote afterwards, the, the London citizen exceedingly abused, that... Um, actually brought these things to light and, uh, and what was done to him. And, of course, his famous escape. Oh, tell me about his escape. I do like
2: to hear <laughs> of, of <That's> some <laughs> good news.
1: Well, as I say, he was uh, chained to his bed frame um, for being disobedient and trying to smuggle stuff out, You know, and he wasn't allowed visitors again. But what he did, when they um, sent the food in, he would use the knife to work away at the bed frame because it was made of wood. And eventually, he managed to work down the bed frame so far that he could snap it and get his chain off. So he did that. It was evening time, night time. And he got to the window. He lost one of his slippers on the way. So, but he thought, I can't go looking for that. I've just got to get out. So he got out the window with uh, one slipper on and one bare foot and a chain round him and went rushing off down well, Dog Road then, what's now Cambridge Heath Road, down to the watch house where the, the watch was. You know, that was the the form of policing before the police came into being, voluntary yeah. service. And he got there and told them what had been going on. And uh, eventually uh, he took Reitman and others to court, although he wasn't actually successful in his court case. But he did write this tract to advertise uh, what had been done to him. And he had been force-fed with medicine as well, uh, which seems to have been an emetic, you know, to to get you to vomit and uh, – well, both ends, basically, shall we say, yeah. oh. <laughs> for decency's sake. Um, nice. Purging was a way uh, of dealing with, um, you know, mental instability, that kind of thing. or Well, it was the way they dealt with it. They thought they were getting rid of toxins from the body. That sort of detoxing thing yeah. is a similar idea. Um but uh, so he was forced fed with those. But um, yeah, it was mainly the the restraint and the fact that he he was restrained there as a private prisoner, basically, that um, brought it all to light. And so it's through his writing that we can see the sort of thing that happened to these people. It just seems incredible that if you disliked somebody effectively,
2: you could just take them to Bethleh- Bethnal House and say, lock him up.
1: Yeah, that and other, other institutions as well, you know. Um, but, yeah, you could do that. Um, there was another writer, a poet, called Christopher Smart. And he was a, I suppose we call them an the evangelical Christian these days. He was a very enthusiastic Christian. And it was his father-in-law, I think it was, who had him popped into Bethnal House as a private inmate. And it was while he was there, he wrote this long poem called uh, Jubilate Agno, uh, Rejoice in the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus. But it's noted mainly for all the passages about his pet cat, Geoffrey. He had this pet cat actually in Bethnal House. And uh, he wrote things like, he is of the tribe of Tiger and that sort of thing. And saying about how, you know, no home is complete without a cat because they teach children how to, to love things that can't love them back and that sort of thing, you know, and and every home is incomplete without a cat all that that stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that, you know, there were a variety of people put away for a variety of reasons. He seems to have become an embarrassment to the family. (laughs) So they popped him in there. Well, all I can say is it's nice that we live in much more enlightened times. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't want your liberty to depend on what your family or friends thought of you. No, absolutely not. <laughs> oh, thank you, David. Thank you.